Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Students Talk Security podcast series, recording live today, March 2nd, from the Notre Dame International Security Center. My name is Kate McLaughlin, and I'm a junior undergraduate fellow in our international security program, studying political science and business economics. Today, I'm joined with Libby Strait, a foreign affairs officer with the U.S. Department of State, to discuss conflict stabilization and foreign policy in Africa. Libby has served as a foreign affairs officer at the department since 2011. She currently works in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, CSO, where she leads the Bureau's efforts to prevent and mitigate violent conflict in West Africa. She's previously served as acting deputy director for the Bureau's Africa office and as team lead for East Africa. During her time with the department, Libby has deployed to US missions in Nigeria, Kenya, and Mozambique, serving as an advisor to U.S. ambassadors, country teams, and partners on conflict-related foreign policy challenges. She has also served at U.S. Africa Command and in the State Department's Bureau of African Affairs. So welcome, Libby. I'm so excited and grateful to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for that uh, super, super kind introduction. Can I, can I just add that um, while I'm not a Notre Dame alum, uh, I am engaged to one. So I am uh, you know, I'm learning, I've been schooled in the art of uh, fighting Irish fandom, but just don't quiz me on, on anything. Still learning. That's so great. I love to hear that. And I'm glad we have a semi-fellow domer with us today. So why don't we get started by having you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what it was that first sparked your interest in a career in public service or what led you to a position in the State Department? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, you did such a really nice job giving, giving my, my background. I, I don't know that I need to dig in further there, but I'll just jump into your question about public service and, and be really honest at the top of this conversation by, by saying that I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I started out wanting to be a dedicated public servant. I, I don't even know that I knew what that meant in, in practical terms. Um, but I did know a couple things fairly early on. And, and one was that I was interested in travel and history, other places, other cultures, and I guess what we might call sort of international affairs generally. And then I also knew, or at least I, I looking back on it, I think I had a bit of maybe uh, a sort of naive idealist uh, nature, nature in me as well. I, you know, I knew I was privileged to have been born into the the family I was born into this, this country and, um, was afforded a lot of opportunities. Um, and I think I, I just always felt a little bit of a need to sort of take those things and, and do something good in return, even if I didn't know what that was. Um, so my, my goal I guess became to try and sort of combine those, you know, personal interests with with also a desire to give back. Uh, and if I could apply my my skills to those issues I cared about, then that would be an ideal career. I didn't necessarily know um, that would eventually lead to the State Department. Um, but while I was in grad school, uh, I started interning at at the department, like a lot of other students. And I've basically been here ever since. I I think the you know the department provides both that. I guess, opportunity to serve, serve my country, an opportunity to work on issues that I think are really important in other places. And, and also, um, I guess, a chance to keep following that, you know, curiosity that I think leads so many of us to want to work and, and experience life abroad. Great. Thank you so much. I feel like I share 
some of the similar sentiments with that and wanting to pursue a career in public service. But once you were at state, what drew you to a focus on conflict stabilization and Africa in particular? Yeah. Um, so my, I think my interest in conflict issues really started before I joined the State Department. Um, and maybe going back to that sort of perhaps naive idealist, yeah, I don't know, sentiment about, about giving back and, and uh, being, being lucky to have been, uh, to have had the opportunities I've had. Um, you know, I grew up in a generation and in a community that really didn't have to experience war firsthand, conflict firsthand until after 9-11. And, and even, uh, even when 9-11 happened, I was quite, still quite young. Um, so, you know, when I got to college, uh, I, I feel like that was really the first time that I was exposed in sort of a deep learning way to, to what violent conflict was, of course, not, not firsthand, but, uh, in terms of my, my coursework. Um, and so I, you know, I learned about the idea of, of genocide, like genocide as a, a concept for the first time. I, learned in a much deeper way about what happened during uh, the Holocaust, you know, what happened in Rwanda in the 90s, what, what happened in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, and uh, even, even more about the U.S.'s own history with, with um, indigenous populations in this country. Um, and I, you know, I, again, it's maybe a little, it was a little naive to to maybe be going into those, those courses blind, but, um, it was shocking and it was eye-opening and of course, terrible too. Um, but I was really drawn to sort of better understanding how those things happened, how people get to a place where they're willing to take up arms against other people. Um, and also what could have been done or what could be done to prevent those things from, from happening again. Um, so I, that's, that's sort of the conflict piece. Um, in terms of Africa, uh, it's maybe a little more, more simple. I, I spoke French, I studied French or, or allegedly spoke French, um, and, and was studying conflict issues. And so the, the nexus of sort of the, the French language, uh, and, and conflict encouraged me to, to look toward parts of Africa, uh, that had seen conflict in the past, right? So the Sahel, um, Central Africa, uh, North Africa also, uh, and then the, the interest just grew from there. I think um, overall, my, my time at the department has really just, I think, helped confirm my belief in this work and, and that the U.S. government in particular has a role to play when it comes to uh, conflict prevention and mitigation. Awesome. Thank you. And now going off in that work, can you tell us a little bit more about what the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations does in general, and then the Africa's team's role in that mission? Yeah, very happy always to talk about uh, CSO and the, the work that we do. Um, so you did a, you, you, you hit the nail on the head when you sort of described who we are. Uh, CSO's job at the State Department is to anticipate prevent and respond to conflict, um, and ideally conflict that is undermining U.S. interests, right? So if we have to prioritize, that, that's sort of how we think about it. We do that in a few different ways, actually. Um, first, we deploy what we call stabilization advisors. So that's usually uh, uh, experienced staff that may 
actually go to the field to help our U.S. embassies um, that might be dealing with or anticipating uh, conflict issues. The second thing we do is conduct analysis. And I know that sounds kind of wonky, but it's, but it's actually super important. We're doing both quantitative and qualitative analysis to help um, the department, uh, the interagency and partners better understand the risks for conflict and then also the, the opportunities to do something about it before, before those conflicts actually happen. Uh, we are leading and shaping policy processes on conflict issues. So that might be helping uh, develop a stabilization strategy for a particular region, for example. Um, and then finally, we, we design programs or uh, projects, initiatives to help support our diplomats do conflict work. Um, I know that's a little bit of a, a CSO, a little a fast CSO 101, but um, that's what we do. The, the Africa team, of course, supports all that work in sub-Saharan Africa, um, which is which is a very large place. We're not everywhere, but uh, but we're we're trying to do a lot. Great. I know I've been really interested in the work you've done in stabilization strategies and what you all have contributed to the Global Fragility Act as well. It's been really interesting to learn about that. Um, but fast forwarding to the recent work you've done in Africa, maybe with a focus on your time in Mozambique, what was your role there? How were the State Department's goals communicated and carried out on the ground there? Yeah, thanks for for the question and for the plug on uh, GFA. I may I may uh, try to plug that later some more, um, but I'll give it a go in terms of this is this is sort of the like what does the work we're doing actually look like in practice question right. Um, so as you mentioned, I've, I've spent some time in, in Mozambique. Um, I've done several deployments in support of the department's conflict work in Africa, all various lengths of time, uh, but I've done work in Nigeria, uh, deployed to Kenya twice, um, and also Mozambique, as you mentioned. And I guess to answer the question maybe a little more broadly, I'd, I'd just say that in all of these places, my job was first and foremost to help advise the, the ambassador uh, and my colleagues at the embassy on, I guess, effective approaches to conflict prevention and mitigation. So what, what could we be doing in this scenario? What could we be doing better? How might we adjust and respond um, to what's going on in, in the country that we are uh, you know, advancing relationships with? Um, Mozambique specifically uh, is facing a pretty serious violent extremism problem in its northeastern province, which is called Cabo Delgado, uh, and it borders um, Tanzania. So actually where, where our, our embassy is and where the capital of Mozambique is, is, is quite far um, from the part of the country that, that we're concerned about. Um, but you know, while serving at the embassy, I was doing, I was doing a number of things. Uh, it, and it gets back to sort of the the tools I mentioned when when you were asking about you know what does CSO do? Uh, I was sort of putting all of those things into practice. So conducting analysis, research, and of course reporting back to Washington um, to better understand what the actual events on the ground were, what the problem was, and and what the opportunities might be to help. Uh, helping design and stand up new programs or initiatives that could uh, do a number of things. But, but given the, the context in Mozambique, it was um, a lot of focus on trying to prevent recruitment and radicalization to violent extremism. Uh, thinking through how to help the Mozambican government uh, sort of at, at all levels, you know, 
not just the the federal government, but should we be working with with local officials too, et cetera, to help you know better protect civilians um, and and combat the threat more more or most effectively, I guess. And then uh, I know this this sounds sort of maybe obvious, but um, it's also just a lot of communicating and coordinating with with partners, both within the U.S. government, but then also with you know other uh, other diplomatic missions, uh, again, the Mozambican government, civil society, uh, Mozambicans on the ground, um, to, to find out their perception of what was happening. Uh, and again, identify ways to help and, and hopefully avoid uh, duplicative efforts as well. So that I, hopefully gives a little bit of insight. Um, I think you asked a really good question about how we communicate this work. Um, and I think part of the response is that it depends, right? It depends who our audience is. Um, and of course, the the audience within the countries we're working in are, are super important. And our diplomats do a lot to engage the public um, in a number of ways. I think, I think it's maybe harder to communicate the type of work we do uh, to the audience at home. So, so, you know, um, within the US, I think it can sometimes feel really uh, removed, like conflict and violence in other parts of the world can feel really removed from our day-to-day -day lives. Um, so I guess I will just say thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it um, and get on my soapbox for a minute here. But, but you know, stability, stability and, and conflict prevention, I think matters first and foremost to the people living with those risks, right? The, the risks of violence and the, the risks of, uh, of conflict that are affecting them day to day, but it also matters for places much further away. It really matters for the US, right? It matters for US economic interests. It matters for um, the safety and security of Americans living or working abroad. It matters for protecting and promoting uh, democratic values to just name a few things. And I think while, um, it sometimes or oftentimes doesn't make the front page of, of you know, U.S. newspapers. It's it's worth talking about. Um, so, yeah, thanks for thanks for letting me shout about it here. Yeah, I really appreciate what you said in terms of the feeling of it might conflict stabilization and especially in Africa being a little bit more removed. But we know Africa has like 54 voting UN members, economies ripe for investment and development. This is something that we should care about. So I'm really happy that we can talk about that today. Um, and let me ask you to share some more of your observations. What are our greatest challenges facing our work? I know you've spoken a lot about the work you did in Mozambique, but maybe in West Africa in general, and what have we done to overcome the challenges um, in that work? Ooh, good question. Uh, big question for sure. Um, so I think I'll, I'll take you up on that, that offer to talk uh, a little bit broader and, and maybe try to answer in sort of an over, overarching way. Um, you know, and I, I, I've been working on Africa for a long time, but I'm by no, no means, and I, I don't even know that it's possible to be, you know, a, an Africa expert, if you will. Um, but, but here we go. Watch me try. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of countries in, in Africa are facing similar challenges uh, and not just in Africa, but in a lot of, a lot of parts of the world. Um, some things that sort of jump out to me at least are uh, demographic challenges. So we have, we have growing populations in a lot of places in Africa. 
um, we know that young people, you know, through through survey work and and just just talking to people on the ground, we know that young people in particular are really concerned about their national economies and the prospects for getting jobs. Um, and and governments in a lot of places just aren't able to uh, support or create enough opportunities to to accommodate that that demand for work, um, which, as you can imagine, uh, leads to a number of knock-on effects. A lot of them, a lot of them negative. A, a lot of frustration. A, a lot of grievances. So that's one. Um, you know, because of the work I'm I'm focused on, I, I think conflict and and instability are uh, are huge challenges. We've we've seen in obviously in Mozambique, but but in a lot of places that that trends regarding uh, the outbreak of violent conflict um, aren't necessarily looking great. Uh, I think that's particularly true when we're thinking about violent extremism and terrorism. Um, you know, and, and in a lot of these places, we're seeing sort of not just one-off events, but almost chronic cycles of fragility and instability. And if if countries aren't able to break those cycles, it's just, it makes it near near impossible, or at least very difficult to create space for, for some of the stuff we already talked about, right? Critical economic development, trade and investment, all those things that, that uh, uh, perpetuate sort of stability over the long term, which is which is really uh, challenge, challenging. Um, and then I guess to, as, a, uh, as a final bucket um, of, of challenge, I'd, may, I'd maybe just talk about governance in general. And, and I know that needs to be parsed out more, but some of the things I mean is, is that uh, we're seeing in a lot of places democratic erosion or backsliding. We're seeing uh, increased authoritarianism, I should say this is this is alongside positives too, and I, I think hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about some of the the less doom and gloom um, stuff because that's definitely there. But uh, you know, those are things to be watching, and of course, governance in terms of like the provision of services to populations is hugely important. It's a massive challenge. It requires reach, it requires resources, it requires coordination and, and communication. And, and regardless of whether you're, you know, Mozambique or Kenya or, or any other country, um, governments don't always meet the expectations of their people when it comes to, to service delivery and, and, uh, and being able to actually effectively govern. And that can lead to, to big problems. So uh, yeah, a lot on, a lot on the difficult side. Um, I guess to, to answer your question about sort of what have we done, what's, what's the U.S. done to help and, and sort of the approach that we take in these places, um, you know, this probably warrants a conversation in and of itself. But I, I would just say, uh, you know, the, the U.S. commits a lot of resources, uh, financial, material, advisory, and of course, in terms of personnel and, and our, our diplomats and others serving abroad. Um, to a lot of things, right? We we do a lot on the humanitarian front. We do a lot on the general development front, uh, health and education, uh, basic service provision, things like that. We have security assistance support. We do training, and there's probably a million other things I'm forgetting, and will kick myself for not not mentioning. But um, I the U.S. is really engaged, and and uh, I think we won't see that slow down anytime soon. Thank you. And 
in terms of that engagement and that work, how has all of that been affected by COVID-19? Oof. Um, that is a really good question. Uh, truthfully, it's, it's just made all the stuff that we're trying to do abroad, I think, a lot more difficult for everyone. Um, it's made travel a challenge. It's it's prevented our partners, you know, from gaining access to conflict-affected areas. Uh, it's forced governments, right, including our own, um, to to respond to the pandemic instead of instead of what could be other priority issues facing their countries. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm by no means an economist, but the the information. That, that we're seeing come out of a lot of places is just that it's put serious economic pressure on, uh, on not just individuals, but, but on entire countries, regions, and, and industries. And I think uh, we, we still don't even know the, have no idea what the long-term sort of impacts of that are gonna be. Um, because I said I wouldn't focus 100% on the doom and gloom. Uh, I'd just say, I guess, the silver lining of this might be amid a lot of great loss, huge loss, is that I think we've been forced to adapt in, in ways we probably uh, should have been doing for a long time, right? I think that's particularly true when it comes to our use of technology. Um, uh, and so I, I think... Uh, hopefully some of the some of those things continue into into whenever this is this is slightly more normal again and and we're able to put sort of 100% focus back into this work. I'm glad we can we can also talk about some successes. So what are some of the successes we've had in Africa and how have we collaborated with the private sector or other departments? Um, I know you spent time with US Africa Command so the Department of Defense to to achieve those successes. Yeah. Um, okay. So maybe, maybe starting with some of the, some of the ways I think we're doing conflict and stabilization work or we're improving conflict and stabilization work. I guess I'll, I'll start there. Um, hard to, hard to, hard to identify, you know, specific successes and also take, take credit for them. I, uh, as a Midwesterner, I, I, uh, have a hard time doing that. Um, but in terms of how we're we're improving, um, I think as a government, we've gotten a lot better at anticipating risks, or in in sort of the the field lingo, you know, early warning, um, identifying challenges in the conflict realm before they arise. I think we've we we're not by no means perfect, uh, but we've certainly gotten better at that, which which helps us uh, ideally in, intervene earlier um, or support governments to help to help mitigate. Uh, better. Technology has definitely helped with that uh, uh, and data science with that piece. I think we're also getting better at adapting to changes on the ground more quickly. Um, so we are, even in the, the 10 years that, that I've been with the State Department, I've, I've seen us really improve our ability to monitor and, monitor and evaluate the work that we do. So identifying sooner what's working to be able to sort of build that up uh, and do more of it. And then also identifying what's not working and shifting course um, when we can and, and need to. And then uh, because you already mentioned it and it, and it put a little um, a, a reminder in my brain, uh, there's also just a lot of attention on sort of the conflict space right now. And I, I think that's really positive. So, uh, you know, at the end of 2019, Congress passed the Global Fragility Act which requires that the, the U.S. government, the, the interagency, create basically a, 
a unified strategy to help move countries from fragility to stability and from, from conflict to peace. And that's obviously a huge task. It's something we've been focused on for a long time, but it, it streamlines, streamlines those processes or it attempts to puts additional resources to that work. Um, and I think we're still, we're still learning how the, the law is going to be implemented in practice, but um, I think it's just really important and interesting that it, uh, and, and reaffirms, right. The value, the value of this work. So, so that's some wins, um, well, maybe not wins, but, but areas that where we've, we've gotten better over time, I guess you mentioned pub public private sector, uh, partnership and, and, and maybe some of, and partnership across the interagency, just uh, quickly on the public private partnership piece. I think that's a really excellent question. Um, you know, if our goal is to help, prevent and mitigate conflict, we should be looking to use all the resources and tools at our disposal, right? And the private sector is one of those sort of key partners within our, our arsenal, if you will. Um, one example for me that comes to mind, uh, years ago, I, I served in, in Nigeria, working really closely with Nigerian partners to um, to help mitigate election violence risks in the Niger Delta, which is a really important part of the country in, in uh, the southern part of Nigeria. We partnered with, you know, both public and private uh, radio, television networks um, uh, to communicate about peace messaging, uh, to help share information about the peace pledges that, you know, uh, official, public officials had made um, about the peaceful campaigns that candidates for, for election had committed to, you know, in an effort to sort of hold them, right, hold them accountable to the commitments that they made, uh, and to get the word out about various early warning networks that existed, um, and, and had similar arrangements with other sort of telecommunications companies, the, the folks running uh, and building cell phone tower, towers, for example. Um, so that's just a, maybe a snippet of how, how that that's looked in my own work, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there and uh, you know, for new partnerships and also for innovation in that space. Um, Kate, your, your final part of that question was about interagency, right? And, and DOD in particular. Um, yes. Okay. So, and I've been talking for a while, but just on that piece, I'd say, you know, within the government, we talk a lot about a 3D approach to conflict and stabilization. What we mean by that is that to do this work, it gets back to that question of tool of question of using multiple tools, right? To do this work, we we recognize, I think, that different players bring different skills to the table. The 3Ds being uh, diplomacy, development, and defense. Um, and that aligns primarily with the work, right, of the State Department, uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, or USAID, and the Department of Defense. So, you know, in my experience overseas, particularly in Africa, where, where all three agencies are engaged and, and active, um, those partnerships have been really crucial to ensuring we're, we're sort of uh, working on challenges from, from all appropriate angles. With DOD in particular, I mean, we've we've traveled together to meet with partners in sort of conflict afflicted areas. Um, in a lot of cases, uh, the Department of Defense has resources for stabilization activities. So, sharing knowledge with each other um, 
about approaches to conflicts and past experiences, uh, lessons from past experiences is really important. Um, and uh, of course, our Department of Defense colleagues, you know, work often directly with partners who play a big role in a conflict setting, right? Foreign foreign militaries. Um, so so understanding sort of sort of that. Uh, those partnerships and and what there's to be gained or improved upon in terms of those partnerships, I think is is valuable for a whole range of the work that that we're doing. Great. I'm really excited about the future of GFA, of the partnerships and of all the work that you've just shared. And I think it would be great um, to end on any advice you might have for someone interested in getting involved in the field of conflict stabilization or, or working at the State Department. Oh, my gosh. Um, Okay, uh, so I think for students in particular, I, I would maybe say, and this is by no means a slam on my al alma mater, which I love uh, deeply, uh, more of a slam on me, I guess. So I, I wish I had taken more advantage of the resources that my university provided while I was in undergrad, um, and actually the same is true for grad school. You know, career centers are there for a reason, um, take advantage of them, go to events, don't be shy about asking for informational interviews with people who do this work, talk to your professors, uh, both, both academic and practitioners um, of this work, apply for internships and opportunities that interest you, um, look out for mentors, uh, and then just know that there are a million different pathways to do this kind of, of career, this kind of thing. Um, many that I definitely had no idea about when I was first sort of starting out in, in, in this realm of, of work, um, you know, within, within government, there's, of course, I mentioned three D's, right? There's, you can do foreign affairs work with the state department, with USAID, with the department of defense, but there's also treasury and commerce and agriculture that all agencies for the U S government that do international affairs work, um, there's the foreign service, there's a the civil service, we could spend an entire hour talking about those two paths. But but beyond that, you know, outside of government, there's, uh, there's research in academia, there's humanitarian uh, work, non governmental organizations, NGOs, um, you know, there's there's professionals in international education, education, they do all these people do work in international affairs, and, and some of them more on the front lines or at the community level of this work than than even I've had the experience to do. So um, clearly I'm like excited. I'm excited about this question and excited about this stuff because uh, there's a lot of ways to get involved. And I would just say, um, take the time to explore what those, those might be. Well, Libby, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to share your experience and give such valuable insights. I learned so much um, and thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, it was super fun. And thank you to all of those back home who are tuning in to listen to this week's episode of Students Talk Security. If you'd like to enjoy more episodes and content, make sure to subscribe to the Notre Dame International Security Center on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you again, and go Irish. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc 
Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.